Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening a door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we explore England's West Country, taking in a handsome village in Dorset, resting place of a farmer whose enterprise and whose wife helped save millions of lives. The Devon landscape beloved of a Hollywood legend. The most perfect combination of sculpture and scenery you will ever find in Cornwall. An enchanted Somerset Coombe that inspired great poetry and the computer age, and an ancient temple in Wiltshire, restored with marmalade. Stop 1. The Grave of Benjamin Jesty, Worth Matravers, Dorset. Worth Matravers is not some flamboyant artist from an Agatha Christie novel, but rather a lovely stone village set high on the cliffs west of Swanage, on the Isle of Purbeck, a distinctive peninsula of some 60 square miles that thrusts out into the English Channel and forms the southern shore of Poole Harbour, the largest natural harbour in the world. After Sydney Harbour. Probably. The village of Worth Matravers is built entirely of local stone, and the countryside around it is honeycombed with disused quarries, from which great quantities of Purbeck limestone and Purbeck marble were removed in the Middle Ages to decorate many of England's finest cathedrals, Salisbury, built in 1220, being a prime example. Worth could be said to be Purbeck's show village, and it contains all the elements that an English village should. Rose-covered cottages, a village pond with ducks, a pub where you are served through a hatch, and a Norman church. The church, dedicated to the original Santa Claus, St Nicholas of Myra, is one of the oldest churches in Dorset, and is a most pleasing affair, with its Norman tower, Saxon doorway, and boldly chevroned Norman chancel arch. However, is a pair of gravestones standing in a prominent position in the churchyard that we have come to see. For here lie farmer Benjamin Jesty and his wife Elizabeth. The inscription on Benjamin's headstone explains everything. Sacred to the memory of Benjamin Jesty of Downsay, who departed this life April the 16th, 1816, aged 79 years. He was born at Yetminster in this county, and was an upright, honest man, 
particularly noted for having been the first person known that introduced the cowpox by inoculation, and who, from his great strength of mind, made the experiment from the cow on his wife and two sons in the year 1774. Benjamin Jesty, born in 1736, was the owner of Upbury Farm in Yetminster in northwest Dorset. In 1774, saddened by the deaths of a number of neighbours and friends lost in a particularly virulent outbreak of smallpox, Jesty was determined to find a way to protect his family from the awful scourge. He had noticed that his two dairymaids, both of whom had suffered a mild bout of cowpox from handling infected cows, seemed immune from the smallpox, despite the fact that they were nursing family members at home who had the highly contagious disease. From this, he concluded that cowpox would seem to give immunity from smallpox, and so he decided to give his wife and two sons a dose of the cowpox. Working in an open field, he took some pus from an infected cow and using the point of a knitting needle, scratched his wife's arm and injected the pus, thus performing the world's first vaccination. The term vaccination being derived from the Latin word for cow, vacca. Jesty then repeated the procedure with his two sons. All three of the vaccinated suffered from cowpox for a few days, his wife quite badly, but they all recovered. And, here's the point, they did not catch smallpox. Indeed, Elizabeth Jesty lived to be a sprightly 84 years old. In 1797, the Jesties moved to Downshay Manor Farm in Worth Matravers, where they lived the rest of their lives. And over the next few years, under the watchful eye of Farmer Jesty, many of the villagers were vaccinated by the local doctor. Jesty had never publicised his findings, thus leaving the field clear for Edward Jenner to claim the first vaccination in 1796, some 20 years after Jesty's exploits. However, news of Jesty's earlier handiwork eventually got out, and in 1805 he was invited to the offices of the original Vaccine Pock Institution in London, where he was recognised as the originator of the vaccination and commemorated in a specially commissioned portrait, which now hangs in the headquarters of the Wellcome Trust. While the invention of the vaccination has undoubtedly saved millions of lives across the world, and Farmer Jesty indeed fully merits his place in history, it seems to me that the real hero of the story is his wife Elizabeth. It is one thing to be the first person to administer a vaccination, Another thing entirely to be the first person in the world to have cowpus injected into your arm with a knitting needle. I'm pretty sure most people would have kicked. Courageous Elizabeth Jesty, however, as far as we know, made no fuss and surely deserves our admiration and acclaim. Stop 2. Haytor Rocks, Dartmoor, Devon Dartmoor is glorious. 
but don't just take my word for it. I have never before in my long and eclectic career been gifted with such an abundance of natural beauty as I experienced filming on Dartmoor. So said director Steven Spielberg, who shot much of the film version of Warhorse on Dartmoor in the summer of 2010. As a man who's travelled the world in search of majestic settings, he should know. Try this. I have wandered Europe, rambled through Iceland, climbed the Alps, yet nothing I have seen has quenched in me the longing after the fresh air and love of the wild scenery of Dartmoor. This time, the words of a Victorian clergyman, the Reverend Sabine Baring Gould whose name alone suggests he must have known what he was talking about. He was a hymn writer, incidentally, perhaps best remembered for writing the words of that robust anthem of the church militant, Onward Christian Soldiers. Music by Arthur Sullivan, and the sort of hymn that sits rather well with the stirring grandeur of Dartmoor. Dartmoor consists of some 300 square miles of wild moorland, with an average height above sea level of 1,200 feet, 366 metres. It is the highest region in southern England, and the largest area of granite in the whole of Britain. Occasionally, the granite breaks through, forming fantastically shaped outcrops of rock called tors. By their very nature, tors are high points that command wide views, and my favourite tor of them all is Hay Tor, a distinctive landmark on the eastern edge of Dartmoor. There are two bare peaks that make up Hay Tor rocks. Both can be climbed by the more adventurous visitor, equipped with sturdy boots and a head for heights, but I find the more rounded southeastern peak a bit more of a challenge, particularly if wet and slippery. There are some worn steps cut into the rock on the lower section, and so one starts off with confidence, until the steps are suddenly interrupted by an alarmingly deep fissure. Here, one teeters with indecision, not wanting to turn back and face the jeers of the crowds below, but equally hesitant to make the daunting leap for the steps on the far side of the void, letting I dare not wait upon I would, as Lady Macbeth might say. However, I am proud to announce that I have never yet bottled it, each time shutting my eyes and launching myself with great courage and fortitude across the chasm. The inelegant landing, the desperate scrabbling for the iron handhold on the other side, placed maliciously just out of reach. The shrill cry of pain Ow! as the kneecap slams against the solid rock face are as naught compared to the sense of triumph and achievement one feels on reaching the top of Hay Tor. The reward is the sensational view of Dartmoor, swathed in green and gold and dotted with rocky outcrops, 
of the rounded red earth hills of South Devon undulating into the far away, and the wide, glistening estuary of the River Tin snaking silvery down to the distant sea. Simon Jenkins rated the view from the summit of Haytor as one of his top ten views, and I can't argue with that. Now how do I get down? Stop 3. Barbara Hepworth Museum, St Ives, Cornwall. I do not as a rule dance with joy when confronted with a piece of modern sculpture, but there is one sculpture so exquisite, so perfect, so at one with its beautiful setting, that it almost brings tears to my eyes when I think of it, and it can be found in the Barbara Hepworth Museum at St Ives in Cornwall. The old part of this lovely fishing village lies sandwiched on a rocky headland between two wide sandy beaches and having no room to expand has retained the colourful maze of narrow cobbled streets lined with gaily painted cottages which, along with the sea air and the special quality of the Cornish light, has drawn artists to the area since, well, since artists have existed. Sculptor Barbara Hepworth moved to Cornwall with her husband and children at the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, and she became so entranced by the wild and rugged Cornish landscape, so reminiscent of her native Yorkshire, that she determined to stay forever. In 1949 she acquired Truin Studio, a typically Cornish stone house on a hill behind the parish church that had a large private garden with views over the roofs of St Ives to the sea. Finding Truin's studio was a sort of magic. Here was a studio, a yard and garden, where I could work in open air and space. She immediately set about landscaping the garden, laying down paths, building up rockeries, restoring an old pond, planting roses, anemones, honeysuckles, eucalyptus, magnolia, palms and bamboo creating a magical, subtropical setting and filling it with sculptures that were inspired by the changing of the seasons in the garden and which appear to grow as naturally in the garden as the plants themselves. Barbara Hepworth died in a fire at Truin in 1975 and the garden and the sculptures are now in the care of the Tate Gallery in St Ives. They have left it all as Barbara Hepworth designed it, and there is no lovelier small garden anywhere. And there is one sculpture in that garden, I think it's called Spring, but it's a while since I've been there, and I may be wrong, that I remember above all the others. It's an egg-shaped bronze, 
cut through with a deeply recessed oval-shaped opening, crisscrossed with strings. It is so positioned, at least it was when I visited, that when you bend down and look through it, the oval opening frames a view of the town and the sparkling blue sea beyond, so sublime that even I, a cold and unemotional man, could not stop myself gasping in wonder. Art and nature in complete harmony, the colour and essence of Cornwall captured in one perfect snapshot. Ravishing. Stop 4. Culban, Somerset. And here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover. A savage place, as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. Samuel Taylor Coleridge famously wrote Kubla Khan, the poem from which these lines are taken, when he awoke from a drug-induced sleep, during which the words came to him in a dream. He was never able to finish the poem, because his train of thought was disturbed by a person on business from Porlock knocking on the door. Coleridge was staying in a farm near Culban on Exmoor at the time of writing, and he would often walk in contemplation to Culban's little moorland church of St Bono, where the mystical and enchanted atmosphere kindled his imagination. St Bono's is England's smallest parish church, at just 35 feet long and 12 feet wide, with room for no more than 33 worshippers. The walls are Saxon or early Norman, and there is a large Saxon font, a 13th century porch, 17th century box pews, and a minute Georgian spire. The best bit is a tiny, two-light Saxon window in the north wall of the chancel carved from a single stone a thousand years ago. Although a quaint and lovable place, it seems remarkable that they still hold regular services in St Bono, for it is possibly the most isolated church in England, perched alone some 400 feet above the sea on a patch of emerald lawn, a small sunny spot of greenery in a deep thickly wooded coombe, far far removed from the busy world. To get to it, you must either walk two miles along the zigzag path through the woods from Porlock Weir, or clamber for a couple of miles down a steep track from a narrow farm lane that leads off the main road across the moor from Minehead. The walk through the ancient trees can be a bit eerie, especially if the sea mist hangs low, for there is no company save the sound of the distant waves and the rustling of the trees. And perhaps, just the faintest haunting echo of a thousand years of song and prayer emanating from the lonely church. Or is it woman wailing for her demon lover? 
Whichever, this is one of England's quiet corners. Where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. As Coleridge might say. But this is not the end of the story of Culban, for this remote and ancient place, so peaceful and unassuming, so far removed from the bustle and industry of the 21st century, not only inspired one of the greatest poems of all time, but also one of the greatest inventions of all time, the invention that created the world we live in today. For Culban is no less than the birthplace of the computer. Now, before you get knocked down by a feather, let me explain. In Xanadu de Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. Lost in the woods surrounding the little church of St Bono are the ruins of a large house called Ashley Coombe, built in 1799 as a hunting lodge. In 1835, Kublai Khan, or rather the new owner of Ashley Coombe, William King, later the first Earl of Lovelace, decreed that the house be enlarged and transformed into a stately pleasure dome in the style of those sumptuous villas that cluster about the Italian lakes. He desired a holiday home for his new wife Ada, daughter of Coleridge's friend and fellow poet Lord Byron who incidentally was the man who encouraged Coleridge to publish Kublai Khan in the first place. No expense was spared. Tunnels were built into the hillside so that tradesmen could approach the house without being seen. The path from Porlock Weir passes through a couple of them and there were steps made leading down to the sea where a bathhouse was built into the cliff from which Ada could bathe in private. gardens were laid out in terraces, connected by spiral staircases, the remains of which can still be seen. The terraces became known as the Philosopher's Walk, for here Ada Lovelace would take long walks with her friend, the mathematician Charles Babbage, the inventor of a calculating machine known as the Analytical Engine, regarded as the world's first computer. Babbage and Ada, a fine mathematician herself, spent many fruitful days on the terraces, discussing ideas for different uses to which Babbage's analytical engine might be put. And Ada's suggestions were, in reality, the first ever computer programs. Ada herself is recognized as being the world's first computer programmer. There is even an early software program, still used by the US Defense Department, called Ada in her honor. So there we have it, the computer age began on the terraced gardens of Ashley Coombe House above St Bono's Church in Culban on Exmoor. I bet even Samuel Taylor Coleridge would not have dreamed of that, however high on opium.
Stop 5. Avebury Stone Circle, Wiltshire. What is the connection between Britain's original brand of marmalade and the largest stone circle in the world? Let's start with the facts. The largest stone circle in the world is the Avebury Stone Circle in Wiltshire. Covering 28 acres and surrounded by a deep ditch a mile long, the circle sits at the heart of that venerable patch of Wiltshire that makes up England's most significant prehistoric realm, where so many of England's most ancient sacred possessions congregate. Woodhenge, Stonehenge, Silbury Hill, West Kennet Longbarrow, Old Sarum. All around, in fields of sheep, our earliest ancestors lie sleeping beneath grassy mounds. The stones at Avebury, like those at Stonehenge, were set up by builders who shaped England long before it was called England, over 4,000 years ago in around 2500 BC, at the same time as the Egyptians were raising the pyramids. And like the pyramids, they were built using only primitive tools made from antlers and wood, and without the use of machinery or computer calculations. Stonehenge, the ultimate prehistoric icon, may be better known than Avebury, but has become rather too well known, cluttered with souvenir shops and coach parties, and anyway, is now roped off from the masses. Well, at Avebury, you can wander amongst the stones, touch them, dance around them if you wish, even have lunch with them at the Red Lion, the only pub in the world standing within an ancient stone circle. Many of the stones are characters. The largest is called the Swindon Stone. I don't know why. In the 14th century, the 35-ton Barber's Stone killed a man, perhaps a barber, by falling on top of him while he was trying to move it. If you want to be particularly reckless, you can run 100 times anti-clockwise around the Devil's Chair and summon up the Devil himself. diamond stone apparently crosses the road at midnight by itself. Indeed, many coming out of the Red Lion after closing time claim to have witnessed it. Just outside the stone circle is Avebury Manor, a gorgeous 16th century Tudor manor house that stands on the site of an early 12th century Benedictine priory. In the 1930s, Avebury Manor was leased by a wealthy chap called Alexander Keeler, the proprietor of a large fortune made from marmalade. Keeler's Dundee marmalade was first concocted, appropriately enough in Dundee, in 1797, 
by confectioner James Keeler's wife, Janet, who made it from a shipload of overripe Seville oranges. It was the world's first commercial brand of marmalade and was hugely popular throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Alas, it disappeared from the breakfast tables of Britain in the 1990s, although it is still produced for export by a firm in Cambridgeshire. Anyway, Alexander Keeler was a keen archaeologist and he used the fortune his family had made from Dundee marmalade to excavate, reconstruct and conserve the stone circle at Avebury. The Alexander Keeler Museum, housed in the Manor House stables, tells the story. So, next time you spread some of Janet Keeler's invention on your morning slice of toast, give yourself a sticky pat on the back, for it is thanks to us marmalade lovers that Avebury Stone Circle, the largest stone circle in the world and one of England's crown jewels, is still here in such good condition for all of us to enjoy and marvel at. Well, that concludes our tour of England's West Country. In the next episode, we visit the South Midlands, taking in the birthplace of English song in Berkshire, Heaven on Earth in Oxfordshire, a country churchyard in Buckinghamshire where we have all the time in the world, the launch site in Middlesex for the first balloon flight over England, and the exact spot in Hertfordshire where a young man made a momentous decision that changed the world for good. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne and guest stars Rupert Van Sittert and Emma Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books available online and at all good bookshops. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. <laughs>